Hello everyone, I'm Chris Jung and welcome to The Helix Show. I'm really excited for today's episode, which is one of our first interview episodes. And today we'll be interviewing Sia Goel, who is a high school junior from West Lafayette High School, a three-time ISA finalist, and has many other accolades and awards in various STEM and entrepreneurship topics. And today I'll be talking with her about her research and her experiences. So hopefully you enjoy. To start off, maybe can we just talk a bit about yourself and how and when you kind of got into biology or neuroscience? Yeah, so yeah, hi, my name is Sia. I'm a junior at West Lafayette Junior Senior High School in Indiana. And yeah, I really like to do research as you'll hear in the rest of this uh, talk. But I guess the first time I got involved with like science or STEM was back in kindergarten or like even even before kindergarten. So like the first that like as soon as I started to talk or like began to understand the world, I got interested in science and I credit this to my curiosity as a child. So as a child, I could like I always wanted to do something like I could never sit in one place and I wanted to go out and explore, explore the world. And one of the best places to do this was science museums. So I used to go to science museums and explore skeletons. And I was really attracted to like biology things. So like skeletons, I used to play with dinosaur fossils, uh, stuff like that. And that really interested me in anatomy and uh, biology. So from there, like in elementary, middle school, I started doing science bowls, science Olympiads, and even started to conduct my own uh, experimental projects. So for example, one project I remember was, so related to biology was, I, I was testing blood viscosity's effect on blood fluorite. So the way I did this was I used different types of milk, so milk with different viscosities, and tested how fast it took for the milk to flow from a bucket through a tube into the bathtub. So yeah, that's one of my first examples of like doing a biology-like uh, project. And from there, my interest in biology attracted me to a lab uh, in eighth grade. So ever since then, I've been working in biology labs. Wow. Yeah. So it sounds like you started really early too. And that's so fascinating. I find that like a lot of times people, when they look back at like their first research projects, they're kind of embarrassed by it, but it sounds like you had a lot of ingenuity there. So <laughs> yeah, I, I can see like, of course, like the first projects you do aren't as advanced and like they aren't as novel as people want them to be, but it's all, but it's always good to look back on them because that's like what draws you into the big stuff and like the novel stuff you do. Yeah, and I love that you also talked about like Science Olympiad and Science Bowl and that kind of stuff because I feel like some students have this pressure to choose between this Olympiad or research track in high school. And I think like Science Olympiad or Science Bowl really supplements a lot of stuff for your research. So that is great. So you kind of just got started in research in middle school. And do you have any advice for just like contacting labs for students? Because I know that's really intimidating. Yeah. So 
so how I got involved in my first lab was actually there was a, so I live in West Lafayette and in West Lafayette there's Purdue University and there's a program in Purdue called pre-college research opportunities where like high schoolers can uh, go there and like you can talk to a professor and that professor contacts other prof- professors in the specialties you want to work in but even though I had access to this route or like this professor who led me to other professors uh, I still needed to send emails or like yeah so send sending cold emails to professors so what I recommend for students who want to get involved in research send cold emails to as many uh, professors as you can I would say start with 20 and if those 20 don't reply do another 20 And before you contact these professors, you want to make sure that you know what they're working on. Because if you talk about yourself the whole time doing your email, they won't know why you want to specifically work with that professor. So talking about yourself and why you're interested in research, plus talking about that professor's research and why you're interested in that professor's research is a really good tactic. And that will also make the professor engaged in what you have to say as you were talking about them and not just you. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's great advice. And did you, so from these labs, is that kind of where you learned a lot of these basic lab techniques? Because your project, which we'll be talking about, I think sounds very advanced. Uh, I guess, do you first start out shadowing or how does that work? Yeah, so this project, so before this project, which was a machine learning project, I did a pure molecular biology project, a wet lab. So you can see like the really big contrast between the two, but for both projects, I, for the wet lab, I needed, I I was trained more than the computational machine learning project. So I actually like, when I got connected to a lab, the professor taught me and his graduate students taught me how to conduct different lab procedures, such as culturing cells and also plasma preps before I actually did did my own independent research. But for the machine learning project, it was more self-learning. Like my professor didn't really teach me the concepts of machine learning. I came to him knowing uh, a lot about machine learning because I read a lot of books. I, I attended courses. I watched a lot of lectures. So yeah, it really depends on what field you're interested in. But if you are interested in a computational field, which I bet a lot of you are because of the pandemic, I recommend reading up on your own before you are actually contacting a professor. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's also like, for example, in my school, we have like this program that teaches us some research techniques, but it's kind of unique. So I think a lot of students struggle to find like this wet lab experience if they want to do wet lab. But actually talking about your Alzheimer's project, which was that your first like competitive project? Yeah, yeah like high school that was actually like competitive research yeah I see so like I think one of the hardest parts for science projects from my limited experience is choosing an idea because even though it seems like you know what you want to do like just setting it up so was that the same for you or how did like you really get started Mm -hmm. yeah making a project is really hard so I did that project freshman year of high school So the way I figured out like the experimental design for that project or what I actually wanted to do was reading a ton of papers. Um, So like basically that whole summer, I sat there and read tons and tons of papers. So if you want to do a science fair project, I recommend you or research project, I recommend you reading tons and tons of papers. Because once you read those papers, you'll find research gaps in the field and your brain will start saying, oh, what if I investigate this area or this gap in the field? 
And once you do that, you'll be reading a lot of methodologies through different research papers. And that will also, that will help, help make you think how you actually want to tackle the problem you want to solve. So yeah, that's why I recommend reading lots and lots of pap papers. Yeah, yeah. And, but since you said you started in like freshman year, I bet there was like a lot of things you didn't know from these papers, like mm -hmm. some terms yeah, and stuff. Yeah. So like, did you, how do you best approach tackling this? Because I feel like some people try to get like this understanding before tackling these papers, but so niche that it's kind of hard. So did you have some sort of understanding before you went into it? So when I first started reading these papers, it was majorly biology papers and I had no previous biology knowledge at all. Like that was like high school level yeah. besides my own reading and video watching. So the way I actually learned what these papers were talking about was reading those papers, because as I read similar papers, I was able to contextualize and figure out, oh, this is what this means. And I, and I also searched up terms I didn't know so that I could put it in simpler terms. And one thing that helped me was like looking at looking up words I didn't know online, but also writing my own notes. So I would either uh, open up my own a Google Doc, or I would hand write or hand take notes about and put papers in my own words. And that really helped me understand what these papers were talking about. And as I did this more and more, um, reading research papers was really became like really easy for me, like it became a habit. So if you make this a repetitive pro uh, process, like reading five, uh, not even five, two to five papers every day, Reading, uh, reading research papers, the perfect, like on Google Scholar, will become a easier uh, task. Practice makes perfect. And yeah. This is just out of pure curiosity. Do you use like a citation tracker or some sort of tool, or do you just like write them down whenever you look at one? Yeah. So. I'm really bad. So I'm actually really bad at keeping track of my sources, but I try my best. Um, so I write down the title of the journal and also the author. I don't really cite it at first. I just write down the title and author and I may just bookmark it because Google Scholar has an option where you can bookmark papers you like. So that's what I do to keep track of papers. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I would love to hear like more about like the specifics of your project. So all I really know is that lauric acid or like coconut oil, it's kind of been shown to like alleviate like neuroinflammation. That's kind of my interest in research as well. But can you talk about like the methods and the results of your project? Mm -hmm. So at first, so the research gap. So before in the beginning of this talk, I was talking about research gaps in the field of like how you should investigate research gaps in the field of whatever you want to research. So Basically, I found out that Alzheimer's, like this is a very known fact, but Alzheimer's doesn't really have a treatment. So from there, I realized that there is a, a genetic pathway, which is connected to the APOE gene. And this APOE gene is irregularly expressed in Alzheimer's or downregulated around 10% of the time. So it's a, it's a pretty big biomarker for uh, Alzheimer's. So from there, what I realized was that other papers were tackling the effect of genes through different saturated fatty acids. So what I found was why not we tackle the string of genes or this pathway of genes in Alzheimer's through a saturated fatty acid. 
So to decide which saturated fatty acid I wanted to use, I read literature, so I read a lot of papers, but I also used bioinformatics or computational tool called Schrodinger. And yeah, the scientist Schrodinger, he actually made it. He, oh, wow. he, made the princi- he made the principles of the software and then software developers named it after him. And, uh, f- and Schrodinger actually made Pymol. And I bet a lot of people are kind of familiar with Pymol. So yeah. Basically, I use Schrodinger to see how the saturated fatty acids were reacting with the pathway. And if it was increasing the entropy of the pathway's reaction, and actually, because entropy, in my case, was a direct factor of the upregulation of that pathway. So yeah, so I found that lauric acid actually was the one that had the highest entropy on that pathway. And Yeah, and that was really coincidental because lauric acid is found in coconuts, as you mentioned in the beginning. So yeah, and coconuts have shown to be have a positive effect on Alzheimer's. So yeah, that was a big link that was found that maybe lauric acid was the ingredient in coconuts that maybe had an effect on Alzheimer's. But then I also conducted a a laboratory project to make sure that the results that I had like similar results. But instead of measuring entropy, I measured tyrosine phosphorylation because the reaction that was actually um, leading to the upregulation of my pathway uh, had tyrosine phosphorylation involved. So yeah, that's basic. And I saw that lauric acid increased the tyrosine phosphorylation of that genetic pathway. So yeah, that's major. That's basically what my project was about. How much guidance do you think you would say you got from others? I've heard that having a mentor or lab sometimes will be looked almost down upon in like science fairs, but it definitely sounds like it was an independent project. So like how much guidance do you think you got? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a good question. Basically, so the the bioinformatics part, so like Schrodinger and also investigating the pathway using bioinformatics, I was taught by like a camp I went to or like a research like research program and it's called, called MIRCOR hosted by the University of Michigan. So from MIRCOR, I learned bioinformatics, but all of the project design and everything was like I, I did by myself, but I had the guidance in terms of like seeing how to use the tools. Yeah. Um, but, but for the laboratory side, the professor I was working with was not an expert in the, in the techniques I was performing and also the genetic aspect of Alzheimer's. So I had to figure out a lot of the things I did on my own. And it was really frustrating. Like I think my cells, like the cells I extracted the protein from died like five times before I actually got results. So you, you can see that when you're doing independent research, you'll have some guidance in terms of like how to do things, but you will be the one who are actually doing things. So you might fail a couple of times or a lot of times, but you'll get results. This is also just out of pure curiosity. I hear a lot about students working in labs, but all of those cells and like buffers that we're using probably cost a lot. So like, are you paying for that or does the lab work something out? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the professor who was like, who, like the professor who I was working with, his main job was kind of teaching me a little bit about the laboratory techniques and he was my main funder. So I got my money from him. I see. No, that's really cool. Thank you for answering that because I was really unsure about that. Um, And 
a bunch of our listeners, I'm pretty sure like most of our listeners will probably want to participate in ISA. Do you have any specific experiences that you think helped you? Yeah. So what I recommend is, so I feel like besides your research, like your research doesn't have to be too complicated. Like you can go in with a basic project and still do well at ISAF if your presentation is really good. So I think that your presentation has to be as good as your research and even better. And how I recommend having a good presentation is just whenever you're presenting, judges don't want to hear you talk for 10 minutes. They want they want to hear you talk for like two to three minutes and ask questions for the rest of the time. And the way you do this is like talking about like the broad aspect of your uh, project. You don't really need to go into the details of your method section or your results. You just want to go over the brief overview of everything. And yeah, that's what I recommend. So when you're presenting, go over the overview, but you should still know the details of your project just in case judges ask about your project. And that's probably one of the hardest parts for law students who like have, so who've spent like a year or more on their project Mm -hmm. and yeah, but that is uh, really good advice. So moving away from your first project, although we're still obviously in the realm of biology, you moved on to like machine learning and like pancreatic cancer diagnosis. Like what was responsible for like this shift or like, yeah, I guess that's my question. Like what made you go into pancan diagnosis? Yeah. So that's a good question. So actually the day I came back from ISAF my first year, I attended this conference at Michigan, again, part of, as part of NeoCore. So there, the president of the University of Michigan, Dr. Mark Gizel, I think is his name, he was talking about pancreatic cancer and like how, how important diagnosis is for pancreatic cancer as there's no specific tool or like way pancreatic cancer is diagnosed and his five-year survival rate is really low, his early diagnosis rate is really low. So the graphics he showed and his talk really inspired me about like the problem of pancreatic cancer. And not just this, but but when I attended ISEF, like the buzzword there was machine learning. So I realized, <laughs> so I realized that, and I really thought that the field was really cool because it like machine learning, especially neural nets is based on the principle of like neurology, right? So you're basically combining neurology and computer science, which was just like really fascinating to me. Like, how can you make computers think of like humans? Like, that's really interesting. So I realized that I wanted to do machine learning from ISAF and I, and also this pancreatic cancer talk was really inspiring. So I decided to do diagnosis for pancreatic cancer through machine learning. Yeah, that's, that's really great. I'm also, I also did a machine learning project this year, so I definitely understand the hype and the fascination. It's really cool to see like how neural networks work, but yeah. So do you, do you want to talk a bit more about your PanCam project as well? So was it just like, did you use like images or do you use other types of data? Yeah. So what current research focuses on is images. So they focus on CD scans and everything. But the problem is that pancreatic cancer tumors show up later. So later in CD scans. So for early diagnosis, this approach is not as great because of the fact that tumors show up later in early diagnosis patients. So for my my PNCAN project, I split it up. So I worked on it my first year, and now I worked on it a little bit my second year. And both times I worked on a little bit different data. 
So my first year, I worked on gene expression data or like protein expression. And the reason why I did that was because it wasn't really done before. So I just wanted to see how it turned out. And also a lot of other cancers were approached by this issue of looking at protein expression. But after conducting that project and making and using machine learning on that data, I, f- I realized that extracting protein or gene expression is really hard to do. And it's really, ex- really, and it costs a lot and is really time, ex- time extensive. So what I did this year was to make it more clinically applicable. I focused on microRNA data. So for those of you who don't know what microRNAs are, are basically they're non-coding pieces of uh, genetic sequences which help regulate the function of messenger RNA and later, and later proteins. And microRNAs can be easily extracted through the blood. And, and this specific type of microRNAs are called serum microRNAs uh, that are located in the blood. So I focused on serum microRNA expression this year just to make my project more clinically applicable. Yeah, that's really impressive. And so this was like a two-year extension project. Do you find you lose motivation in your project when you've been doing it for longer than like one fair or one year yeah I can see how like so I did like after my first year project I feel like I did get a little burnt out like my pancreatic cancer project my first year I got a little burnt out not really because I lost interest. It was just because it was a lot and I needed a break. So I took a break from it and I went back. But I just feel like the field is so fascinating. And if you find a field that's really fascinating, you just want to keep working on it. So yeah, for for the listeners out there, I recommend you choosing a project that you really, really love because you'll do well with that project. Yeah. And I think it's hard to see student science projects being applied in the field. And Sometimes like doubts that I've had is like, oh, this won't really make a difference to the scientific community. So like one, I guess, how do you see hospitals using this? My other question is like, do you have any tips to get to that point to see it like applied in the field? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so what, my, what I produced from my project, like I made a diagnosis tool and this diagnosis tool is basically a user interface which analyzes microRNA expression and basically finds the specific uh, biomarkers for each patient. So it basically spits out the top five most differentially expressed microRNAs in a patient, as well as if the patient has early and late or late stage pancreatic cancer or not or no pancreatic cancer. So to make to like train and test my uh, model, I used to just public data. But now what I'm doing is I'm reaching out to hospitals to further increase my testing data set and validate my um, user interface more to see if uh, it's continuing to have high accuracy and also if it's accurate and also like if it's credible enough to be used in a clinical basis. So I feel like this user, if I prove that it is clinical, clinically based, this user interface will be a way where users can just extract serum expression and uh, for every patient and then train and test if the patient has pancreatic cancer. And this can be a routinely test for pancreatic cancer because the current problem in the field is that CT scans are the way that pancreatic cancer is diagnosed. And CT scans can often take around, it's around $5,000, like the test of 3,000 to 5,000. And most of the time, this isn't taken routinely because of the expense. And 
it's only taken if patients demonstrate symptoms. But another problem with pancreatic cancer patients are that symptoms are kind of blurry. You don't really know what the symptoms of pancreatic cancer are because they're very generic. So if we do, if we look at serum microRNAs, the expression tactic, you are basically just extracting blood and then applying it to a microarray. So which, which is less costly in today's, today's technology. It takes around $300. So you can see that if this method is applied clinically, it will be 10 times cheaper for patients and also and will help make it a routinely test. And this whole platform, like this whole user interface that I've made, it can also be trained and tested on other cancer data, cancer data sets like breast cancer, um, lung cancer, and it can become a routinely test for those cancers too. So, so yeah, that's why I think that this user interface has some applicability to the actual real world if I prove that it's credible enough. Yeah. And I think that's another thing that draws people to engineering projects rather than like some of the more hypothetical things is they can actually have a vision of where it's going to end up. But that's really incredible. It would be super cool if like there was an app that you develop app by Sia Goal one day that hospitals can use. <laughs> yeah, but... yeah, yeah. That's the dream. That's the dream. <laughs> that's the dream. Yeah. yeah. So I think moving on from like your specific projects, I did want to touch on that you have like an accolade of accomplishments. And I think balance is a really hard concept for everyone, but high schoolers struggle with it also. And do you have some advice on how you manage your time personally and just stress levels in general? Yeah, that's actually a really, so I didn't really manage my time that well this (laughs) week, if I'm being honest. And yeah, I mean, it happens, like, you can't be productive all the time, like, like, so, but yeah, so basically how I manage my time is I just create a schedule of everything I have to do in a week, and I split it up until days, so I make, if it's research goals, so like, I, I put my main goal for the week, and then I put, like, steps on how to get to my main goal, and what I have to do every day of the week to get there, and then I put my uh, homework goals, what homework I have to do, and then if I need to study, and then also my other extracurriculars, I'm in the goals for them. So yeah, I just feel like really writing out a detailed schedule and everything you need to do in a week is really helpful. Some people actually even put the times of like when they're going to do things. So they're like from 10 a.m. to uh, 1 p.m. I'm going to do this. But yeah, I don't do that. I just feel like that's kind of stressful. (laughs) So I do not do that. But that might be a useful tactic for you. But yeah, sometimes your schedule doesn't go as planned and you might get a little behind because research, there are many faults and stuff that come in. Like it's a lot of tuning and making sure that everything's going right. And yeah, so it's, yeah, but I do recommend making a schedule that helps with productivity. Another thing that is really impressive about all these high schoolers that do science research is you kind of learn the dedication and just a perseverance it takes, like you said, a lot of your cells died and you had to just retry and retry. And I feel like that can be really discouraging. So it's amazing how people pull through. And then you also touched a bit about school. And I just know that a lot of people who do a lot of research or extracurriculars often place less emphasis on school, although obviously it's very important. So do you find this is the same for you? And I also want to ask, like just a rough estimate, how long do you think you spend like 
doing research? Yeah. So about school, <laughs> yeah, I do feel like, especially because school is virtual the, for me this year, it's very hard to like, if you were doing like really intensive research and you really want to focus on your research, it gets hard to focus on school. But I feel like you really need a good fundamental knowledge of the classes you're taking in school to do good at research. Like the two and two go hand in hand, like taking AP science classes and even beyond that are like ways you do well in research. So I try not to fall behind in school or spend less time on it, but it does occasionally happen. So I have to lay back on the research and then focus on school for a little bit of time. So yeah, I recommend not falling behind on school and basically finding that equal balance between school and research. And yeah, sorry, what was your second question? It was just like, how long do you think you spend on research? Maybe like a week, but it does vary, like you said. So, Yeah, so during a very intensive time of research, which is probably because fair season for me starts in late February, early March, and then it goes on until like the summer. So December, January and February are really like intensive months for me maybe even November. And that's where I'm working uh, probably 15 to 20 hours a week, if not more on research. But like on in a normal week, it's still a lot like it's around five to 10 hours. And that's like preparing material for like science fairs or like competitions that I want to participate in or like fine tuning my research or like writing papers or stuff like that. So it's not as much research as it is like material preparation, as I would say, but that still takes a lot of time. So yeah, I, I, once again, I feel like research is a very time intensive thing, but yeah, try to find an equal balance between everything. Yeah. And I think a lot of people know what ISAF is and a lot of people have opportunities at their local fairs or state fairs, but are there any more like names that, you know, that you participated in or you would recommend someone else? Mm-hmm. So there is JSHS the Junior Science and Humanitarian Symposium. So that's a really good fair that you can participate in. So for me, my state fair and regional fair are completely different from JSHS, like the way you qualify for nationals. But yeah, ISEF is probably the most prestigious fair there is, but JSHS is also very prestigious. So I recommend you, everyone participating in that if they can. Also, there are other more, also another competition is Davidson Fellows which is more where you write up like a paper about your research, plus make a video and some other things. And they judge your paper. It's not really you are presenting to a judge. That's also a good fellowship to apply to. And there are also more specific uh, fairs you can apply to or contests. So depending on your field. So I know for environmental science, there's a lot of different research competitions, like there's Stockholm Water, the Stockholm Junior Water Prize, and there's also Genius Olympiad. But for more biology projects, there's like the BioGenius Olympiad, which students can participate in. And yeah, I I think that covers it. There used to be a lot more like a couple of years ago, like Google, Google Science here in Siemens. But yeah, they've got they've been canceled. So yeah, yeah, here, these are just some fears you can participate in. Yeah. And Davidson fellow, that's also the one that gives out big scholarships. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think there's a 50K, a 25K and a 10K. Yeah. Wow. And then also like on the presentation, Ashley, you said it was very important and that's very true. How much room do you leave to practice before a fair? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like I usually do a week or two like now 
just because I'm, or maybe even a couple of days, dependingly on how, like, dependingly on how well I know my research and everything. But I definitely recommend for people who are participating in science for their first time, for, for their first time, leave, ideally leave two to three weeks. Because that in those two to three weeks, what you're doing is you're constructing a PowerPoint. Now, it's mostly a PowerPoint presentation. In previous years, it was a poster, like mostly a poster, but I feel like more fairs are sh shifting to like a PowerPoint type of presentation. So you're formatting this PowerPoint type of presentation. You might also want to prepare like a speech of different lengths, like a two minute speech, a five minute speech, a 10 minute speech, dependingly on what judges want to hear. And you might also want to just make a, a brief, like a write up a paper if your fair requires that. So that takes around two to three weeks, if not more. So I would recommend leaving two to three weeks. But yeah, the ideal rule of what people have it are, is like leaving 30% of your time for presentation and 70% for actual research. And um, jumping now into RSI, which I want to touch upon because I know a lot of people who want to get into RSI. It's super difficult to get into and congratulations on getting into RSI. That's really amazing. Do you have any tips for aspiring applicants maybe next year? Yeah, so my first biggest piece of advice is be yourself. Don't try to be a person you're not because they really like authentic from my my knowledge which is really limited because I just found out that I I got accepted like three weeks ago so and I don't really know how the application process works yeah. but for anything even college and RSI kind of works like college just try to be authentic like be yourself and show your passion for science and research like if you really convey your passion for science and research they'll like accept you because that's what they're they're looking for and the way you do that is through personal anecdotes. So in my essays, I wrote about personal anecdotes from my childhood, through my research experience, and also stuff that like, there's an essay that asks, well, how, like, why do you want to get, why do you want to go to RSI? So I wrote about talking to uh, friends who have gone to RSI and like what they've said about the Institute. So really talking about experiences or anecdotes that you remember or you can make memorable through your essays is really important. Yeah, that's good advice. Especially there's really no need to like fake an application, I guess, but it, there definitely is so much stress for a lot of students. And don't really like, so there's a section where you have to, where you list your awards and achievements. Don't worry if you don't fill out that whole space. Like they aren't really, like there's a myth that people are looking at, like they're looking at how many awards or achievements or like the prestige of that. But that really isn't the case. Like they're really looking at your passion for everything. So don't try to make up awards or like fill up, like be worried about like filling up space because that's not the right way to go. Yeah. And this is something I forgot to ask, but ISEF, obviously, once you get in, you get to meet a lot of amazing people and professors. So do you have any like fun experiences or just lessons learned? Mm -hmm. So like ISEF 2019, that was the only in-person ISEF I could go uh -huh. to. Sadly, yeah, now that everything's virtual, it's harder to make connections because you are talking to people over text or video calls. But even then, I recommend you connecting to people because it's still an amazing opportunity for you to connect with like-minded people. 
but some of my memories, greatest memories are actually from ISF 2019. So just meeting Team Indiana and that flag actually has everybody's <laughs> signatures on it. But yeah, um, just meeting that team and getting to know them. Like I met some of my lifelong friends on that team. And also at ISEF, like I, I helped start this organization called Buzz Online, which is a STEM teaching organization, just like Helix. And the way I got in contact with the other co-founders was through ISEF. So it's a really good networking opportunity, not just for research, but other initiatives that you might want to start because people have similar interests and you can really bond uh, over them. And yeah, it was really fun because you get to go to this thing called the mixer, which is basically like a party dance like thing. And it's a really fun night right after uh, judging ends. So yeah, it was a really fun time just meeting everyone and getting to know everyone. Sounds like a great experience. (laughs) And so it seems like you're really knowledgeable through your research for all of these niches of like molecular bio and like comp sci and healthcare too. So do you have any future plans and maybe like thinking about college like in what you want to major in or just a direction Mm -hmm. yeah so right now I'm leaning towards like a mix between computer science and bio I don't really know exactly what I don't know if it will be like more biomedical engineering or like computational biology or something like that so yeah I'm just keeping my mind open but in terms of like the future like my career goals I've like always wanted to be a cardiologist, um, which is really different from pancreatic cancer. But yeah, that's just something I'm really fascinated by cardiology too. So that's something that I'm interested in. But yeah, I, let's see. Let's see where I go. I, yeah. I'm thinking of maybe making this diagnostic tool into a startup if I can in college. So yeah, maybe I'll go something more in the marketing route or like uh, tech development. Yeah, that would be amazing. And then one of my like formal questions is if you had unlimited resources, do you have any burning questions that you would want to answer and like dedicate your time in studying? Mm -hmm. I think cancer is definitely a field that I would want to study just like uh, diagnosis and treatment and personalized medicine. Those are all three really important fields to target. So I would spend all of my time focusing on those three fields. But also, I think a larger issue, like an issue that's really prominent nowadays, besides the pandemic, is climate change. So I'd also devote some of my time investigating climate change, because I feel like that's the most impending problem. And if we don't find that problem, we won't be able to solve any other problems. So yeah, those are two major areas I would focus my time on. It's really interesting to see how, I think, Nowadays, we definitely want to rely on science to back up a lot of our politics or just our day-to-day life. So mm-hmm. I'm very hopeful that science will lead our climate change discussions yeah. in the future. Yeah. <laughs> but to wrap things up, I have some rapid fire questions that aren't really, they can take as long as you want. <laughs> but if you could have one snack food for the rest of your life, what would it be? oh cookies like chocolate chip cookies I really like chocolate like the soft chocolate chip cookies yeah the soft ones I don't like the like crispy ones like the chips Mm -hmm. ahoy yeah no and this this one's a bit more technical wet lab or dry lab which one do you prefer I would say dry lab yeah just because I've spent more time with dry labs yeah and I think nowadays it's like 
you need both. You definitely need a lot of computational skills. And do you have a favorite TV show or a movie? So, I guess my favorite TV. Do I? I I don't watch a lot of like TV、yeah. shows, but I'm trying to remember if I do. Okay, so I watched Never Have I Ever on Netflix, and I really liked it. A lot、I've、of people don't know that, but yeah. So a lot of people don't know about this show. It's basically about this girl who's like really smart, and she's like adapting to high school life and just like regular high school life. So yeah, it's just about her adventure and everything. And her dad just passed away, so it also talks about her adaptation to that. And it's like, and it's a really relatable show. Like, there's a lot of the, I really like the diversity in that show. So yeah, if you really like. I think that you will be able to relate to at least one character in that show. Yeah, that's great. And then, what's your favorite genre of music or favorite song? Okay, so I I really like K-pop specifically <laughs> BTS. <laughs> yeah, I've been in Army since middle school. So yeah, and I actually attended one of their concerts freshman、wow. year. I attended their I attended their Love Yourself con- concert. Oh、uh, wait. Yeah, love yourself concert in、oh. 2018. So quite a long time ago. But my favorite song, I I don't know my favorite BTS song. Like I like all their songs, so I would just say BTS. Okay, okay. Well, that's basically it for my questions. Do you have any parting words of wisdom? Yeah, I would just say do what you like, do what you love, and make sure to like not stress about stuff too much. Cause I'm in the stars tonight, so watch me bring the fire, set the night light. Shoes on, get up in the morning, cup of milk, let's rock and roll. Kick out, kick the drum, rolling on like a Rolling Stone. Sing song when I'm walking home, jump up to the top of the brown. Ding dong, call me on my phone, nice tea, and I'll get my ping pong.、Huh. This is getting heavy, can't hit a baseball, I'm ready. So much for listening to the Helix Show. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Spotify or wherever you're listening to this podcast, and shoot me an email at chris@helixscience.org for any questions or comments. I hope you tune into the next episode.